welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I am the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, three experts discuss the topic of funding first-of-a-kind projects and the challenges and risks associated with it. They emphasize the importance of defining such projects and the need for different types of capital, such as government funding, venture capital, and philanthropic funding. They also highlight the significance of selecting the right partners and considering equity issues and community engagement for impactful climate solutions. The conversation is moderated by Kim Zhu, co-founder of the climate tech media and research company CTVC. The video of this episode and more can be found online at sosvclimatetech.com. Awesome, thank you. Excited to be here, joined by a really fantastic panel. Um, funding first of a kind is a, is a topic near and dear to our hearts. We've done a bunch of series on this in CTVC. And so excited to be joined today by Laura Pierpoint, um, who's the Director of Early Climate Infrastructure at Prime Coalition. Um, Douglas Schultz, who's the COO of DOE Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. And Scott Jacobs, who's the CEO and co-founder of Generate Capital. Um, particularly excited today because we're joined by leaders on all different facets and sides of funding first-of-a-kind projects from, you know, the public funding side, from the nonprofit and philanthropic side, as well as from project finance. Um, so excited to get this conversation started. Let's see, starting with Douglas um, and, and uh, starting with Doug. How do you define first of a kind or folk, as some people some people like to call it? So I think, um, well, particularly now in the role that that we're in uh, with OSED, the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, is um, it's obviously technology. It's first of a kind technology, but I think it really um, is much more than that. I mean, first of a kind can be business model. It can be the markets that it's involved in. And um, uh, all of those provide kind of unique situations. But I do think most people think about it as technology. Are there specific examples of uh, a folk project from your experience at DOE, whether OSED or, or LPO, that, that you could share that could help kind of clarify that sure. uh, definition? Sure. Yeah. So I think that, um, like, for example, um, if you look back at uh, solar PV, um, you know, back in the early days, uh, before utility scale was big. So the loan programs office was was set up. There had been a lot of uh, projects, small kind of projects looking at PV solar. But in general, the market was not there to do large scale projects for many, many reasons because of um, the, the concerns about the length of the technology, et cetera. And so we basically needed to be able to show business models that um, that other financiers could look at and understand. And once they figured out that the modularity around the, the technology and other things that they could replicate, they were able to kind of come into that market. So that's one where um, obviously it was very quick in terms of the adoption. Um, other technologies take more time, but it's really about showing that business model and taking away that variability um, that uh, financiers need. Yeah, if I can jump in on this a little bit and just build on what Doug is saying, you know, I think he's absolutely right that we really think of technology first as being first of a kind. And also there are these other dimensions around things like business model. I just want to say one thing though, which is that I think we have a little bit of a definition challenge in this space because often, you know, people when they say first of a kind can mean everything from like an early pilot or sort of demonstration in some way that may not even have a revenue stream all the way up to something that's fully bankable by project finance and traditional sources of capital. 
And that is a huge range of projects. So one of the things that I'd love to appeal to our community on is, you know, can we start to converge around a little bit more specificity around those stages since there are big differences? Awesome. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think it's always helpful to, to start off with a definition on, on the topic. Um, maybe to, to Scott, uh, Douglas mentioned uh, a few things on financing these projects. What are the challenges um, you've seen with financing first of a kind? Um, how is this similar or different to the types of risk returns that you've that you're looking at at, at Generate? Well, the, you know, the minute you say first of a kind, the minute you've just closed all your financing options for the most part. Certainly any mainstream or deep capital pools are not interested in taking uh, first time risk on anything really, business model, technology, scale up, any of these different ways we might define it. So we may be ruining our chances for financing first of a kind by calling it first of a kind in the first place. But um, I also hesitate often to paint with a really broad brush when talking about financeability or viability uh, of a technology or of a project. You really have to get into the nuts and bolts of an individual project, project by project, to understand the underlying risks. Because at the end of the day, an investor, whether it's an equity investor or a, a credit investor, a lender, is looking to make a good risk-adjusted return. And so that all starts with understanding what those risks are and then uh, defining whether that meets someone's expectations for a risk profile that they can, that they can support. Um, I really liked how Doug expanded the definition from technology to things like business model. Generate has been active, as uh, I think many of us know, in um, trying to pioneer new asset classes of infrastructure since our inception about 10 years ago and build that bridge to bankability, as we like to call it, for these types of assets. But it's usually really a function of the business model that uh, we're taking something on maybe for the first time, we're taking risks on that others wouldn't take. The interesting part of it is, is that we knew going in and we've only validated through our experience that it's not just about capital taking risk, it's actually people and a lot of different types of people that need to take the risk to build a project, whether it's for the first time or for the nth time, there are people that are building the project. And um, there are people involved in using the project. And all of those people are often more important than anything that uh, an Excel model or a financier might tell you about the risks involved in something. So from our experience, you know, we've had a lot of success uh, pioneering or establishing the bankability of certain technologies that we believed were proven, maybe others didn't, but where the business model was the evidence of it being proven in a new form. Uh, and it really starts with demand. At the end of the day, is there customer demand for what the project is going to produce? And if that customer demand is solid enough, they might be willing to sign a contract with a fixed price for a fixed volume of output. And once you start getting that level of granularity and contractual obligations with other people, other entities, other stakeholders, you start to, you know, mitigate the risks that financiers will see with respect to a project, whether it's the first time in that business model or first time in that technology, or again, like I said, the nth time with that business model or that, that project. Yeah, 
That's super helpful. Um, and I think, you know, coming at it from a venture perspective, it's easy to outline the risks. There's technology risks, there's market risks. Scott, maybe you can kick this off. How would you categorize the types of risks that you all are thinking about when financing projects? You mentioned a couple like demand and offtake. Uh, what are the other broad categories you're thinking about? I think one of the most underappreciated risks involved in building a project, whether again it's the first time or the nth time, is the actual development of the project. Um, a technology company is not a development company, and by the way, neither is a development company a technology company. They probably should never be under the same roof. They are completely different competencies, completely different business models, talent bases, cultures, et cetera. What we've found oftentimes is that in the absence of project developers being willing to take a risk on either a new business model or a new technology, the technology company takes on the risk of trying to build that project, and they're not very good at it usually. And so uh, what we try to do is help these technology companies either find a good developer who would be willing to take that risk or build some of that development capability. But you have to be able to develop a project, which means finding the land, getting the regulatory approvals and all the permits, selecting an engineering firm to build it, getting all of the supply chain in place so that everybody delivers on schedule and on budget all of the different components of the project. It means getting that revenue contract. It probably means building the financing or the capital stack for that project. These are all things that have almost nothing to do with the development of the technology itself, which is what venture capitalists are good at funding. right? And so there's a whole set of competencies, as Laura said and as Doug was talking about, that are involved in these successful projects, whether it's the first or, or you know, a much later one. Um, that you know really don't exist under one roof in any case. So it actually takes a lot of different stakeholders to come together to actually build a successful project. And when you're doing something for the first time, very hard to even incentivize all of those stakeholders to try, much less to actually succeed at bringing them together and bringing the best of all of their capabilities so that you have a successful project built and financed. And just to, just to build on that, we talk sometimes about how the Silicon Valley culture is to fail fast and break things, which is great when you're developing technology, and pretty much the opposite of what you want culturally if you're developing a project. So this is one of the big bridges we have to cross. But at Prime, at the Early Climate Infrastructure Program, we're also really thinking about all of these risks because, like Scott said, every project is really different. And so understanding very specifically which are the kind of risks that apply, and particularly if we're going to bring philanthropy to the table, how do we be really targeted and surgical around the things that we're trying to support? So certainly the project development risk, the offtake risk is big. There are some nuances with basic technology risk and engineering scale-up risk, which is also something that we're looking at. Um, so project execution risk is buried in there and sort of the development elements of what, of what actually needs to happen. Um, and then there's obviously all kinds of market and policy risks and things like that that we have to take into account as well. So it's a pretty huge universe of things that we're looking at. Yeah, and, and if I could just, I mean, just to, because I do think this is one of the really important points that we see all the time uh, is it's hard to have a conversation with somebody who's developing a technology and then tell them that there are other uh, areas that are as risky or maybe even riskier in a sense. Um, development capital is the hardest capital to raise. And as, as Scott and, and Laura said, there are things that happen 
that are completely outside of your control sometimes. You could spend a lot of time on developing something that looks great, and then something out of your control happens, and the entire project you know, uh, doesn't work. Um, and so that is, that's something that is, is, is really important to understand. And also, there is no cookie-cutter model. Um, this is not something where you can just say, well, I saw this done over here. Can I just do the same thing over here? Or is it the same leverage or the same? It is, you have to understand the tools and then be creative about how you use them. And that is not, um, that's not an easy skill set to find. So, um, and, and kind of get everyone on the same page. That said, it's so great that DOE now has a whole system for adoption readiness levels. That's one of my favorite things that DOE has done recently to really acknowledge it's about more than the technology. Definitely. Everyone should check out the DOE's ARL. Uh, we, we created a graphic for that as well in our, in our newsletter. Um, Laura, I wanted to, to pull on that thread a bit more about um, types of capital and uh, types of development capital that's out there. From your perspective at Prime, um, how do you think about the di different types of capital specifically for funding projects, especially projects where the technology might be uh, earlier in the greater scheme of, of uh, commercialization? Yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of the types of capital represented here, of course. I think a lot of folks, when they're looking at uh, projects that have some element, particularly of technical risk, but really of any and all of these risks, government funding is obviously a really interesting place that they start. And it's really great to see the DOE really focused on deployment and on what it's going to take to kind of get through some of these later commercialization steps. Um, obviously, the folks like Scott and Generate out there that do project finance are all, you know, very much in the mix. And, um, and it's so cool to see some of them really leaning forward into some of the earlier stages to the degree that they can. Um, venture capital obviously is very much part of this as well. And, uh, and I think it's really interesting to see that in certain cases, we're starting to see venture go maybe even a little bit later than we had originally anticipated. Um, in some cases, I think that's by necessity because we still see that there's a pretty big gap here. Um, but all of these are potential sources of capital coming in. On the philanthropic side, and that's really what we do with Prime and the Early Climate Infrastructure Program, we're still honestly, I think, finding our way around what is the best role for philanthropy to play. As folks can imagine, it's incredibly important for philanthropists to be making sure that their, their money is really going towards its highest, best use and is really doing something that ultimately is going to have impact. That's their North Star beyond all of the financial metrics that obviously really matter within these projects. Um, so that's really what we're experimenting with at the Early Climate Infrastructure Program. How can we really try to get things moving in this space, help bridge those gaps, but make sure that we're doing it with a really strong impact mindset. I definitely want to come back to that point on, on creative accelerants or enabling factors um, for, for deployment capital. Uh, but, but Scott, maybe I'll turn it to you on, on, on how you think about the different types of capital and, and where project finance kind of sits within the stack. Yeah, I really loved Lara's overview, and I, I just want to build on that. I think that there are certain uh, players in the in the ecosystem now taking on new risks than they have in the past. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting about Lara's comments is is early stage venture versus late stage venture. You know, twenty five years ago, I was in the venture world for technology companies, primarily focused on software, and a late stage venture investment was a company that was producing a lot of revenue. And if it wasn't producing a lot of revenue, it was an early stage venture capital investment. Well, unless you've built a bunch of projects or sold your technology into a bunch of projects as a technology company in climate tech, you don't have a lot of revenue. 
So I think there may be a need for rethinking venture capital stages when you've got project risk involved in the proof of the technology's viability. And it's exactly here where there's the capital gap, but there's a capital gap in large part, in my view, because there's an operational gap. To the points I was making earlier, it takes human beings to build projects. And most developers, if you just think about their incentives, their incentives are to sell projects, build projects they can sell. That's how they make money. You can't sell a project if everybody who is in the buyer universe thinks it's too risky to buy and hold for the life of the project, call it 10, 20, 30, sometimes 50 years we're talking about here. And so it has to be so locked down for a developer to think there's actually a liquid market of buyers such that the developer is even willing to take the risk to develop the project. Hence, the technology companies often try to build that development capability themselves out of necessity. And whether or not they're good at it is, is, is not actually the point I'm making right now. Where will their venture capitalists fund that? Because that's still early stage venture because they don't have revenue. And so the cost of capital for those first projects, not just the first project, but for the projects is quite high. And do the economics for those projects then work with that high cost of capital? Far too often, I hear from an entrepreneur or a venture capitalist, we've proven it at pilot scale. It's ready. It's ready for Citibank to make a loan and for Generate to take the equity stake. And that's just the wrong conversation to have. The conversation needs to be how many hours has it operated successfully, continuously in the exact form we're talking about proposing for this next iteration of it. How many blue chip players have been willing to put their seal of approval on it, whether it's an insurance provider or an EPC or a customer willing to buy the, out, you know, the output? There's, there's as much as we've come a long way in the, in the climate tech financing ecosystem, and we've come a long way in the human capital and, and capability ecosystem, we still haven't really addressed this exact point that once you're at pilot stage, how do you get to a at-scale rollout of the solution that mainstream capital will find safe enough to put their money at risk for? And that's both the capital and uh, capacity, human capacity gap that really represents the, the continuing valley of death for many of these solutions. Yeah, and Kim, if I can just jump in, I, I think that that is, um, that is one of the understanding that life cycle of the capital stack is a, um, is a, is a really important thing for um, anybody who's, who's trying to develop their technology needs to understand because it is, um, as Scott was saying, it's that cost uh, of those first units that the, 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 
you know, fifth, sixth, seventh project will be cheaper, or it should be at least forever. Everyone expects that to happen, or they wouldn't be putting the, the funds in. But you have to figure out, there have to be, we're here at OSED, we can help with that, right? We can actually help defray some of those costs by by putting grants uh, money into that. But it's it's not only what what we do, it's, it's going to be um, figuring out who your partners are and how to share some of those benefits too. I mean, people need to think about if someone is coming in and actually helping you uh, to move a project forward, it's not just that project. They're not going to do it just for that first project. They may do it if because they're helping to move a technology along. And so I think there needs to be an openness to a lot of different conversations, too, about how to how to think through how to share some of that value that's being created by having the first or second project done um, with the capital that's coming in to do that. Um, I think that that's really important. And the the other point I'll make is, is um, on first of a kind, um, it's really about variability. Um, so I think financiers in general um, will will take risk, but they need to understand what the bounding of that risk is. Um, and so then you can bring insurance in. Then you can figure out what the leverage is for debt. Then you can figure out what your return expectations are. But if you don't understand how to bound the variability, that's when people just you know, stand away. So I think it's 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 really getting those first of a kind projects to help bound and at least understand what the that something's possible and what the variability is as well. Yeah, I really I really love both of these comments, especially thinking a little bit about the value inherent in the first of a kind projects and not just about all of the risks because there is a lot to be said there too. Um, but yeah, just to, to be clear, you know, I think all of these sources of, of funding are potentially available, and just as Scott said, none of them is perfect. Like none of these were really designed to do what needs to happen right now in climate tech, and that's really kind of the why philanthropy at this stage. But even with philanthropy, I think we've got a road to hoe around really kind of you know showing that there are big amounts of money that are needed to start moving this space and start designing the solutions that are going to be required to really carry this forward. Um, and also that this is something we can do, that philanthropy can work in tandem with the private sector to really make these kinds of projects happen and ultimately to create the pathways to scale the mechanisms we're going to need. Definitely. These are all great points. Um, and I, I want to pull on some of those a bit further. There was mention of you know, insurance, standardized offtake, project developer education, what are factors beyond just, you know, more capital that could actually accelerate or, or even mitigate these bankability risks? Um, Scott, you want to kick that off? Well, I think we keep going back to, you know, whether people are willing to take these risks or not. And um, and so I, I don't think, and you know, a developer should be expected to take the risk on a, on a first of a kind anything because he or she is likely to struggle with the off, you know, with the sale of that project. Um, and so we have to solve the development gap that, that we're talking about. It's not just education. <laughs> There's no incentive. They're not even going to get educated, right? Um, and it does go back to what Doug was saying, I think, about sharing the value over time that's get, that gets created. But I still think most developers are going to find it too risky to think about whether they can make money on Project 17 when you know they don't even necessarily believe Project 1 makes sense. Um, and, you know, sense sort of with both... Uh, spellings of the word. So, you know, when I, I just look back at our experience and I say, okay, in 2014, we did battery storage. Everybody thought we were crazy. 
uh, now everybody thinks, you know, we were ahead of the curve and, you know, everybody's clamoring to get into battery storage. It's only been nine years. Um, but even then, I would have pointed out that we've had that technology that we were using in our battery storage projects sitting on our private parts and next to our brain in different forms. And we didn't think it was risky in those forms, but somehow we think it's risky in a server rack in the basement of a building with a bunch of software and cooling equipment and other safety provisions taken. It was a business model change to the earlier points that have been made um, that solved, importantly, a customer problem. At the end of the day, customers benefited from this solution being installed in this particular way, and they were willing to sign a contract that committed them to paying for the services provided from these battery storage technologies. In 2016, we did hydrogen fuel cells in forklifts. Why did we do that? It was, you know, most people would have said we were crazy then too. Um, it was because we were solving a very specific problem for a very specific customer. And then we did the work to understand whether the technology, the engineering, the development, the insurance could all fit together in such a way that we were comfortable with the overall risk profile. Now everyone thinks that is not a scary thing. So if you're willing to do the work on a project-by-project basis and you have the team in place to not only understand the technology risks or the financing risks, but you actually have the team to do the work to mitigate the risks. Venture firms don't have that. Banks don't have that. This is work that either development companies, infrastructure operators, or engineering firms have to do, right? If you do that work, you can start mitigating these risks and then you can bring the financing along because you've mitigated those risks. That's a great point. And I think it was it was helpful to you to, to have some examples of, uh, you know, battery storage uh, and, and hydrogen fuel cells as business model implementations of this. Doug, Lara, from your from your experience, both at DOE and at Prime, what are some ex- other examples of either recent or you know within the last decade implementations of funding towards climate tech projects? Um, what are the types of sectors or technologies you think are coming up the curve, similar to to some of the stories that Scott just shared? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think there are a number of places where we know we need to focus our energy, whether these are the right things to do next, because I think really, you know, what Scott said is so important that it's about solving a problem and about the incentives. And one of the things that's really hard about the climate tech space is that the incentives are not always there, because sometimes really this is about greenhouse gas emissions reduction. And where there are places like, you know, renewable fuels mandates and things like that, there are incentives and there are problems to be solved. But there are other places where there aren't. So, for example, we're seeing a lot of activity in the carbon dioxide removal space. And obviously, there are some great buying signals associated with certain big tech companies and things like that. But we need government-level procurement of carbon dioxide removal to create a stronger demand signal there. Um, So that said, I think that's a really interesting space. And I think more to be done on the demand side. 
We're also seeing a lot of activity around things like geothermal energy generation. We at Prime and Early Climate Infrastructure are really focused on electric vehicle charging because we really see that as the sticking point to get EVs on the road and decarbonize transportation. Uh, a lot of things in the agricultural sector are starting to get really exciting. Uh, so we're watching that space really carefully too. So I would say a lot of places where there are some really cool things happening, particularly on the technical development side, um, but there's a lot that's going to need to come together to really see these projects happen. Yeah, and I, I think it's already. I, I think most everything's really been touched on, but I, I think it's it, it's a lot of um, just continuing to uh, drive all the various pieces. We were talking about the adoption readiness level, all these different elements that are going on. It is a very complicated. It, it's it's we're now in a situation where. It's not the same as it was 10 years ago where you could look at an isolated project and technology. Now you're really looking at how do all these pieces fit together. I mean, we're talking about the new hydrogen economy now, and it, it's very complicated, right? Regionally, it's different. You're going to have different different strengths and weaknesses there, different use cases. Um, and uh, the transmission grid and every all it's all interrelated. Um, and so there's a lot you have to look at now when you're thinking about viability and how all these pieces come together. Picking up on that hydrogen economy and, and relating back to Kim, your question of something recent, you know, we just funded a, a hydrogen development uh, portfolio and partnered with a developer to go after green hydrogen opportunities. But our specific business approach here, uh, probably unsurprising given my earlier comments, is that we have specific customers who have a specific need and a specific willingness to pay under a contract for green hydrogen. So we're building for them and figuring out how we can replicate and scale that. Uh, similarly, we have a wastewater technology that we've been involved with for many years where we are the customer. We own a bunch of wastewater producing assets. So we've been looking for a technical technology solution for our problem. And so we went and canvassed the market because we are the owners and operators of these assets. We now know what will work for our assets. And we believe it will probably work for others, but we're actually just satisfied if it just works for us. And so we need to develop these wastewater technology solutions for our projects alone. And if they work for us, then there's likely a greater applicability and a greater addressable market for it. But again, we will be solving our own problem, uh, taking sort of the customer lens on ourselves with that technology selection and that project development activity. Fantastic. Um, and I know we're getting to time now. There's so many areas we could dig into, but I want to leave it with one final question. I'd love everyone to answer it. Um, since mostly many of the audience uh, today will be climate tech founders, whether they're early or late in their journey, what is one takeaway that if you were talking to this founder, what is one takeaway you would tell them uh, if they're thinking about raising financing for projects later down the road? Anyone should feel, feel free to start. Be very careful selecting your partners. Your, you need the right capital partners. You need the right development partners. You need the right regulatory partners. And there are no shortcuts. No matter what people say, there are no shortcuts, not only to finding those right partners, which takes a lot of work, but to aligning your interests with all of theirs. And that takes a tremendous amount of work. But do the work you won't regret it. And if you don't do the work, you will. 
Yeah, and, and I'll just throw in, and it's 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 kind of building on that. It's understand what your value proposition is, um, and so um, and it's going to be different to different people. So as Scott said, you know there are some that may have a higher willingness to pay for something. Um, you you may go after that market first, um, but it, it it goes hand in hand. You need to make sure that all those partners understand and they understand the value that they're getting, and then everybody's like like Scott said is aligned. But I think that's that's something that sometimes uh, founders don't understand is they understand their technology, but they're not understanding why it's actually valuable to somebody. I'll just say one thing, which is I'm going to speak to the founders who are in it for impact and who are really here for solving the climate problem and getting to net zero, because those are the folks we want to be working with. And what I will say to them is don't ignore equity issues and community engagement. I think for a long time, we've been thinking about this as something that's sort of a, an add-on to how we think about the climate space, and we need to rethink that. And this is not just because that's the right thing to do. It's because that's how we're going to solve the climate problem, is by actually engaging communities. That is going to speed up your project development process. That is going to enable you to have impact at global scale. So that's something that needs to be integrated into your thinking from moment one. And we're really, we're really very interested in supporting folks who think that way. So, totally agree with that. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody. This is fantastic. Um, and thank you to SOSU for, for putting this on. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Kim.